Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. And this week, I'm very excited to share that we have another guest interview. It's my friend, Dr. Susan Belanger. Let me introduce her. She uh, has a whole bunch of letters behind her name, none of which I'm going to recognize, Susan, <laughs> because I think you have different designations in the U.S. than we do in Canada. But but you've got an LPC, an NCC, an ACS, and a DNASAP. I mean, that's and so. But for the rest of us, here's what's important to know: that she is uh, an, an Adlerian um, practitioner. She has a private practice in Canton, Georgia, and she specializes in treating clients with eating disorders, disordered eating, and those are different, uh, body image, and all of these are through the Adlerian psychological perspective, which as you know, that's what this whole podcast is about. She's also published several articles about eating disorders in both scholarly journals as well as professional periodicals. And she also serves as the executive director for the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology, NASAP. And I will put a link in our show notes so that you can check us out and join us. We have uh, room for, for parent members. And it is also she's also the immediate past president of NASAP. She's been married to her husband, Mark, for 23 years, and she has two daughters, Catherine, age 15, and Samantha, age 12. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled that you asked and uh, thrilled to be with your listeners. Yeah. So as a teen, I, you know, I was doing fine in my family uh, with my body until I hit puberty, and then like every woman in my family history, and then I watched it with my daughters, there's something about the night gene, that's my maiden name, that when we hit puberty, we just pack on the weight, you know, early to get the boobs. And that was the first time I really started to try to do drastic things in order to fit to this societal image of, of what I thought 
skinny, sexy that boys would want. And, um, and gee, I think about myself as coming from a pretty strong family, having good self-esteem. I thought, holy cow, if I, if I did all those dumb, stupid things, never to the point of getting disordered. Um, but I feel like in, it's almost part of every, uh, adolescent, I'm not going to say just girls because I know boys also have mass, you know, toxic masculinity and they've got their ideals, but I feel like there's every, every parent raising somebody who's going through adolescence has to know something about this relationship to eating and body. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. It's, and I think it's even more so these days because of all of the social media influence and how it has just um, infected, particularly for teenagers, infected their everyday lives. Um, and I, and I choose that word in, or that verb infected purposefully um, because I think there's so many things that um, are related to societal standards and cultural images that are so unrealistic. Um, and they, and, and they change over time. You know, I, I remember telling my daughters, it used to be that if you had a tan, then that would mean that you were a, a farm laborer and that was embarrassing. And that only the wealthy had white skin that was under umbrellas and little gloves because you were wealthy and that being thin meant that you were starving and that it was a sign of wealth if you had some fat on you, you know, and that now it's the thigh gap. And, and if you have a tan, it means that you take, you know, holidays, you know, in, in the Caribbean and these things change over time. Yes. Yes. The one, the one thing that has not changed is, um, you know, that, the, the standards that get set um, are set by, um, you know, industries that are, you know, just trying to make money. And so one of the things that um, has been very interesting to watch um, is the how much money gets spent in the diet industry, how much money gets spent in the cosmetic industry, um, and, and that, you know, the overall now kind of health and wellness, um, and I use quotation marks because, you know, there's many things out there that are promoted as as healthy and, and good for you that that really aren't. So yeah, I mean these these the standards have changed over time, but what hasn't really changed all that much since you know the 1980s is is the money that has been poured into um, that perpetuates these uh, you know these ridiculous standards. So so one of the things. And our feelings of inferiority that they're completely unattainable or even even what would be required of those people that do attain it. We forget that it's like, well, yeah, if you dropped out of school or quit your job, maybe you could go to the gym and work out for eight hours and, and look like that. Or, you know, if you're a Hollywood wealthy person that can do the liposuction, have a personal chef and whatever. But but our young girls just look at this and think that, well, if she can do it, why why don't I look like that? Why can, why why does how did my body not come out like that? in this very yes. small prescriptive way of looking. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And, and you know, it used to be, you know, growing up, so I'm, you know, three years away from 50. Um, and so growing up for me, it was all the print magazines, right? And so looking at Teen Vogue or, you know, gosh, I don't remember all of them these days, but, but looking at those images and thinking, God, exactly right. Why can't I have the body that, that's like that? And what a lot of parents don't know um, is that, that digital retouching industry that existed, you know, for all of those print magazines still exists today. Um, it's just gotten fancier. And so when you think about social media and the filters that people now can use with Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and, you know, whatever else, um, you know, there's still this unrealistic standard 
um, well, that gets a, perpetuated. It's a good point that is, that before to do Photoshopping, um, and, and there's some wonderful, and I think part of digital literacy training for our young people is to actually see the before yes. and how those are, how they really don't walk down the street looking like that <laughs> and to, to show what happens in those Photoshopping uh, episodes. But the thing is, those tools used to be, to your point, just for the glam shots. But now with the filters on your phone, there's literally one called the makeup filter. There is ones that change, you know, your, your this is at the at the fingertips of any user. So our perception of how beautiful, you know, and again, quote unquote, beautiful by some external standards. Um, But what we're, uh, the marketing of that image, everybody can, has access to to this on their phones now. So that, so it's um, even more prevalent. Exactly right. And so there's, you know, Facebook and, you know, similar things where people are scrolling uh, and and I love the term that has come out within the last year of doom scrolling um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it really is impacting. And so this is one of the things I would love for your listeners to recognize is, you know, the more time you spend on those, the, the higher, the stronger those inferiority feelings are going to be because everybody puts out onto Facebook or because of these filters, the images that we see that we're scrolling and scrolling past and taking in and taking in are so made up, are so unrealistic because they've most of the time been digitally retouched or we only share those things that uh, make us look really good. And yeah. so, you know, we've, we've gotten so far away from a, a realistic view of what anybody's life is really like on a daily basis. And so, you know, that sense of I don't measure up, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy has just become even even more exacerbated by all of these, um, all of these, you know, neat little at your fingertip kind of filters. So, and, and so, because I know parents love to hate social media and because I do love social media. (laughs) I love it too. I gotta say. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we, I think we agree that if we need to use it for the good, but we do need to do social media training with our kids and we need to have conversations about all, this is the content of the conversations about it, but it isn't, those feelings of inferiority and not good enough and needing to live up to also comes from our, our family home environment. And so um, I know that um, in Adlerian psychology, we work with a family system, right? So, so can you speak to, to some of the family factors that, that play into those <laughs> negative feelings? So from an Adlerian point of view, because, you know, again, from, from the theory um, Adler said that we all come into the world in an inferior place. We need people to care for us. We need people to to love us and raise us and nurture us, um, you know, feed us and clothe us and change our diapers and, and all of that. So we start to figure out who we are in relation to others around us through those caregiving kinds of experiences. And so, you know, as we quickly, you know, grow up and enter the world of school and and, you know, things like that, Um, the ones that still have the most impact on us are our siblings. And so as we try to figure out who am I in this family, how am I going to fit in and belong in this family? Um, You know, some of those interactions perhaps related to body size, body image, appearance, um, those kinds of things probably get started in that family of origin. And so uh, if we step outside of Adlerian literature for the moment, there's enough research that shows that mothers who diet, um, and now it's even looking at parents who diet, not just moms, let's not blame the moms, 
Um, but you know, parents and, and caregivers who diet um, have children who also see that diets are a good thing and a, and a useful thing. And so one of the things that um, I, I coach most of my parents on when I'm working with a client who's, you know, a, a young person who's struggling with an eating disorder is for them to really kind of check themselves. How much um, do you just inadvertently or, or kind of on a, on a non-conscious level, talk about your body, talk about, gosh, I wish, you know, I, I could get back into those jeans from high school again, or, um, you know, gosh, I wish I could lose that 10 pounds. Um, and we just say it in passing, but our children hear it. Um, and so there we go, right? So then this thought of like, well, if mom, who maybe the kid sees as beautiful, doesn't like her body, then how am I supposed to feel about mine? And so that's how some of it gets started. So, so again, there's enough research that shows, you know, any kind of fat talk or even an, a, an overarching emphasis on healthy eating, right? So we think we're doing great by teaching our kids about healthy eating, um, but that can get overdone too if we're not careful. Because it's that, it's that um, we, we, we want food to be part of our cultural tradition of breaking bread and bonding and coming together. But when it takes on this other importance and this like kind of hypervigilance of any kind, you know, to your point, if we're like reading all the back of the labels and how many is it this? And do you know how many grams of sugar are in that? And you need your so many things of fiber and we're, do you, we do it in the name of health, but it's like, wow, that's a lot of conversation about what we're eating. Yes. And, and, and again, you know, there's, I don't think anybody um, in the industry has found in, in the mental health industry and in the diet industry, and I'm sure nutritionists are going to be upset with me when I say this, but, you know, we are so influenced by you know, the fads, the preferences, the, you know, think about how the, well, in the U.S., you know, that whole food pyramid thing changed um, because, you know, it used to be the base was all about the carbs, right? And so then with keto and, and you know, some of these other clean, healthy living plans, it turns that completely upside down. And so then what are you supposed to believe? Yeah. So, so there's not really any good rule of thumb to follow these days. And so, you know, we gravitate toward things that sound really good or, you know, that seem to have the, the, the research backing to support it. Um, but yeah, nobody's got the, you know, the money to pay for a personal chef and a um, personal trainer and all of these kinds of things um, to really get it right, um, to get that balance right between food staying fuel with still some enjoyment to it um, without overdoing it on the enjoyment side and, you know, and there we go. Then we kind of have that imbalance with it. Yeah. So, so that model, and I, I, for every parent that's listening, now that it's on your radar, just notice in a day how many of those little comments, subtle, that come out of our mouths. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot more than you would recognize. So now that that's in your awareness, <laughs> watch for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, Speak to family atmosphere in terms of like some of the, um, uh, you know, high ambition control. Do you see any patterns in the, of that way? Yeah. So, so let me come back to that prompted me to come back to an idea about, um, you know, birth order. So Adler was the first one to talk about birth order, but um, again, it's not so much, you know, what, what number you are in that order, but more the, the, what you make of being the oldest or what you make of being, um, you know, the youngest or the middle or, or whatever it is. 
there is no reliable research that shows firstborns are always the ones that develop eating disorders, or it's always the youngest, you know, as they try to get attention or, you know, so there's nothing about, you know, the actual number, you know, the, of where you fall in the mix of your family that points to you're more likely to have an eating disorder. And there hasn't really been good research uh, from a, from an Adlerian standpoint about what, what about the psychological birth order? So that's some of Allison, what you're talking about is what are some of those traits, right? That, that are kind of, we know where we kind of slot them with a certain type of birth order. Um, so there's way more research on the personality traits more so than, than any kind of um, birth order position, if that makes sense. So the research shows that people who um, have more of a perfectionistic kind of a tendency, who um, are, are more detail-oriented, who strive to have that sense of, um, of recognition, that external recognition, um, those are the folks that tend to struggle more with knowing that they're good enough, right? So they kind of have more of those inferiority feelings. Um, and, and so those particular traits, at least in my research, have, have come out to be the, the most important ones. So those who um, set high standards for themselves and the strengths may be that they can reach it, but sometimes those standards, particularly where body comes into play, uh, aren't achievable because of genetics or you know, other, other circumstances. So, so those tend to be the biggest culprits are the ones who, um, who think life should go a certain way, um, who, you know, are capable of, you know, achieving at a, at a high level. Um, and, you know, maybe have gotten so used to achieving at a high level that then the fear of failure is pretty strong too. Yeah. And, um, so not that we can predict, but if you're just the average family person listening in, you're a mom and you're thinking like, oh, well, you know, I got a kid who's got pretty high standards and she's about to go through puberty. And boy, I've been on a few diets in my days. Like, ah, what's coming down the track? I mean, what's, what signs do you start to look for? Um, you know, so that you can just kind of be on the alert and, and besides modeling, what are there some other protective factors that we can be doing? Yeah, so I think normalizing the conversations about your body is going to change um, and, and it needs to and it's okay. And your body changing, that means the scale might go up, but let's not panic about it because, you know, you need to allow your body and in particular your mind um, to increase the number on the scale as it needs to. Um, and the main reason why eating disorders are so harmful uh, is that they they tend to hit kids, you know, in, in this puberty time frame a lot of the time. And that's when, that's that second period of significant brain development. And so if we're restricting calories or binge purging behaviors or, or kind of whatever it might be, um, you're robbing the brain of essential nutrients that it needs to grow. And so um, some of the stuff that parents should look for, you know, is at dinner time um, or on the weekends, you know, maybe they're like, no, I already ate. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's unusual. I didn't see you eat, but okay, I'll take your word for it. Right. And then that kind of starts slowly. You know, if kids um, come home and they haven't eaten their lunch. Um, so there's still, you know, items from lunch in, in the lunchbox. Um, if, um, you know, you start to notice that there's um, body checking, so they can't pass a mirror without stopping to kind of look and look at profile or look at, um, you know, they turn sideways, you know, or focusing on certain body parts. 
I, so I assume some of the that beginning includes, I assume that includes also like the whole uh, checking of, of your pictures before you post them. Like my kids were always like, you don't post anything unless I approve it. Let me see, you know, delete, delete. Let me, let me try that picture 400 more times. Like, <laughs> wow. Right. Yes. Yes. So, um, so anything that really looks like, looks like preoccupation that has gone, you know, much farther down that, down that road. Other things that parents might pick up on, you know, a, a change in friends, um, uh, maybe less time spent with, with friends. So now if you think about, you know, a middle school or high schooler and, and a group of friends, of course, COVID has ruined everything for the last year, but um, that would ordinarily go out um, and they would go out to a restaurant um, and then, or go to the movie theater or, you know, some of these other typical kinds of things that teens would do. And then your child is saying, no, I really don't want to go because, and, and at first you're kind of like, oh, well, maybe there was a fight or a disagreement. And, and I certainly don't want to push my kid to go and spend time with somebody that doesn't like them or they don't like, but really what's at the heart of it is I don't want to have to eat. Oh. I don't want to have to go and eat pizza or I don't want to have to go and eat, you know, at that particular restaurant. Um, and so they just start avoiding and isolating. So that's something else to, to be mindful of. From a bulimia standpoint, you know, again, if if there seems to be pushing away from uh, participating in mealtimes or they participate in mealtimes and then immediately get up from the table and they're in the bathroom um, and you hear water running or it's like, you know, they say, I'm going to go take my shower and then the shower's on for 30 minutes. Um, if that's not normal, you know, then that the shower may be covering up the sound of the the vomiting to get rid of food. So, I don't want to scare your listeners, but those are just some of the things that maybe, you know, oh, would, they want, would be I noticeable. That, yeah. I, you know, and I also know that um, uh, when I was, I had a, my teeth done with that Invisalign and um, my periodontist knew that I was a parenting person. And so we got talking about that. And he says that he's often the first person to bring it to yes. a parent's attention. Can you speak to what he was discovering in that mouth? Yes. Yes. So um, I actually, I might. I offered uh, to do a workshop for my dentist because, um, you know, I, I just randomly asked her at one of my cleanings, have you, have you noticed? And she said, oh my gosh, yes. Sometimes we really scare parents because it's the first, we're the first one to bring it to their attention. So, so the thing that's happening there is that the enamel on the back teeth starts to wear away because of the stomach acid, right? Stomach acid isn't supposed to be anywhere else besides our stomachs. Um, and so when it comes back up, through you know the purge behaviors, um, it can it can start to take the enamel away on the back teeth. It also can look like sores in the mouth and uh, you know changes in in the in the gums and how the gums appear. Um, and again, it's not anything a parent would necessarily pick up on, but a dentist would or a hygienist would. And, um, and thankfully, we're still taking our. I mean, I know COVID slowed down our our you know medical appointments, but the truth is, you know, if you're doing your regular checkups, you would hope that, you know, someone's, someone's peeking in back there and being another set of eyes for you, which I think is good. Yeah. Um, what now, um, let's talk about some incidence rates and the comorbidity with depression. Um, so, so how prevalent is this? How much should parents be worried given they have to worry about everything? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, thankfully a, a full blown, meets all the criteria eating disorder, um, happens pretty rarely. Um, 
so so you're looking at, you know, at least in terms of the U.S. population, you know, anywhere from like one to five percent. Certain age groups, you know, it, it tends to be higher. So, um, so you know, the, the, the triggers of puberty and, and, you know, all of the things happening biologically and psychologically, you know, that, that tends to be a riskier time. Um, and so you see a higher percentage, um, you know, among teenagers. Interestingly, the, the next fastest growing portion of the population um, that's developing these eating disorders um, are middle-aged women who are now empty nesters and kind of that purposefulness in life uh, goes through a massive change. They're not parenting the way that they had been. You know, kids are off and married and now it's like, what do I do with myself? Um, so that's just a, an interesting tidbit. So, um, so when it comes to comorbidity, a lot of parents may notice more anxiety kinds of things. Uh, kids talking about, I, I need to go talk to somebody about anxiety. I'm having lots of anxiety. And, and using those anxiety symptoms, oh, I just can't eat. I'm too nervous. I'm too upset. I'm too anxious. I'm too whatever as a cover for what's really an eating disorder underneath. Um, so anxiety and eating disorders are, are pretty much hand in hand, um, particularly the longer it goes on. It, it, it's, it almost becomes phobic or a phobia, you know, that then eating anything becomes, you know, kind of that, that taboo, like, Ooh, that, that causes me anxiety. You can also see it with depression. So again, it's hard to say with, with kids who are isolating, you know, did the depression start? And then just the, I don't have any desire to eat kicks in after or vice versa. Like it's hard to say, but you can also see some of that um, keeping to themselves, isolating, not enjoying things they used to do and think my kid's depressed when it's actually avoidance of, you know, things that involve food. So some of the, some of the things that you want to really kind of keep an eye on, you know, again, are there, are there multiple things that you can look at? So my kid is isolating, um, but what are they doing around mealtimes, right? So it's not, kind of looking at, at it from multiple angles. So it might be depression, but what is my kid doing in terms of food? If I were to take notice of that or ask questions about that, um, what are their answers? Um, you know, same thing with anxiety. You know, if you kind of take notice of anxiety and then see, okay, well, what's happening around mealtimes? So then it's hard to snuff out as a parent, but certainly a, a professional who's trained uh, could help figure that out pretty quickly. And, and if I understand this correctly, the anorexic wants to keep their anorexia. They don't want this looked after. You know, they might be way less interested in going to counseling because you don't stop this. I, I want to lose the weight. I, you're, you know, if you get me better, uh, then I'm not going to be able to keep this up. And I want to keep it up. They don't want to change. They're, they're the, uh, you know, the non-compliant, <laughs> you know, it's the parent's agenda. But when it gets down to being uh, your your weight gets so low that your health gets critical, you're hospitalized. I mean, uh, that's one of the things that's so scary, I think, about anorexia is that, is that we really have um, a, a concern with death from a mental illness because the body can't live at 60 pounds. Right. Concern tends to go to anorexia first because of that, right? We, we all know that we can't, we can live a certain period of time uh, without food, but we can't go real long without without having having food. So, so that tends to get a lot of the press and a lot of the the attention. Um, just as dangerous are the bulimia kinds of symptoms too, and a lot of 
you know, parents, um, because their kid, maybe their weight doesn't change a whole lot, think, oh, well, we're out of the woods. We don't have the, the real serious one, right? It's not anorexia. And, and the unfortunate reality is that there can be even more cardiac issues associated with bulimia because of the electrolyte imbalance that gets thrown off, right? So with sodium and potassium, you know, if you're doing a lot of uh, purging kinds of behaviors, you can throw those electrolytes out of whack pretty quickly and then, you know, have the, have the cardiac problems as a result from that. So, um, so they're equally problematic from my standpoint as a, as a, a you know, professional who's, who's helping to treat them. Um, but I get the feeling that the, the bulimic's going to come in and say, dear God, I'm ashamed of this behavior. I'm disgusted with myself. Please make this go away. And the anorexic is going to be the one that's like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Nothing wrong here. No, I just, not. you know, I mean, yes. I, I'm making generalizations, but. Yes, I, I, I agree with you that the, in, in terms of um, turning them around quickly, um, most people really don't enjoy throwing up. And so the, the tendency to want to kind of turn that around is, is stronger with people who are struggling with those issues than it is with people who uh, are doing more of the restrictive side. Um, it all points to, if we come back to theory for a second, it all points to purposefulness of behavior. And so one of the things that um, traditional cognitive behavioral therapy misses and, and again, cognitive behavioral therapists um, use, everybody's kind of unique in kind of in what they use in, in terms of CBT. And so I want to say CBT is in the eye of the beholder. So you might find practitioners of CBT that, that look at the underlying purposefulness, which, you know, we good Adlerians always do. But I think that's, that's really the key component. If you can figure out what purpose this behavior is serving uh, for the individual, then it's a lot easier to help turn those light bulbs on and then figure out, okay, what are we going to do differently? And so the purposefulness I found uh, from an Edlerian standpoint is typically it's, a, it's about that belonging. Somebody feels inferior in their belonging. They don't feel like they fit in. They don't feel like they're pretty enough. They don't feel like they're thin enough because they're looking around at their peer group and making a judgment call on themselves that I don't match. And so what can I do to match better? Um, and so that's where it all kind of starts. Or, you know, again, kind of the peer group says, you know, you kind of hear the fat talk that, again, what has been modeled at home, and then we bring it into our peer groups. Um, and so then it becomes kind of a spurring each other on with it. And so really the purposefulness is to try to fit in and belong. It's to try to figure out how am I going to be okay when I don't feel like I have that place. And then what happens over time is it perpetuates itself. So the sense of I'm not good enough says, well, then I can't deal with anything going on in my life. So if I can't, you know, if I can't be in this friend group, if I can't um, do well in school or kind of whatever it is, um, well, let me just use these behaviors because then I don't have to think about it. I don't have to feel those inferiority feelings. I get to distract myself with counting calories or excessive exercise or, um, you know, kind of whatever it might be with, with binge purge behavior too on the bulimia side. So really from my standpoint, eating disorders are just a way of trying to cope with life that feels overwhelming. Which can look a bunch of different ways, which is why, yes. you know, as much as I love, I, I, I'm trying to make this caveat with each podcast, you know, we're trying to teach the theory so parents can understand, you know, how we see things, but 
every person is in their own unique family and they have their own unique private logic and lifestyle. And so it's, it's always hard to make generalizations and put people in buckets. So we're, we're trying to make some close proximity, um, you know, so that usefulness of behavior, knowing that we're social creatures and need to belong. Like I know one woman's realization of the usefulness of her eating disorder was that she was um, the good child and would, um, uh, she had siblings who her parents were quite busy with and she kind of faded to the background and she would never burden, never put upon, be a good girl, um, do it, be responsible. And she would never deflect the attention to her unless she was sick. You know, that it really took, it, it took her to be disordered um, and hospitalized, you know, before that was like, because other than that, that would be, you wouldn't take the limelight off your siblings. You would take your quiet place in the family, you know? So again, different usefulnesses of how to get, you know, your importance, your, your part of the family pie. Right. So each, each story is a little different, but it follows these themes. Right. And this is where we probe when we're working with individuals and families. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's, you know, and I think that's why you're not going to see research that definitively says, you know, firstborns or people who view themselves as a firstborn, right? Because um, it just doesn't match up um, for the reason that you you just spoke to, that each of us has a very unique perspective on ourselves and others in the world around us. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in my experience, you know, I've seen um, the purposefulness be I can think of a, a second born who had a sibling 15 months older um, and there was a, a third sibling younger, but this, this particular person didn't see themselves as a middle child. They saw themselves as a second born competing with that first born a lot. And so because the first born was, was smart and pretty and an athlete, um, this second born tried to find a place by kind of at least keeping up, if not outdoing. And so, um, you know, kind of realizing that the outdoing couldn't happen in some of the similar ways as that older sibling had already kind of cornered the market on. It was like, well, I can, I can do it by getting sick. I can do it by, you know, going in this socially not useful direction. And so part of our work was for her to figure out how else can you find that place besides, you know, doing this damaging stuff to your body. And so, you know, in, in those instances, family therapy is going to be the best, the best approach because then you can sit down and have everybody's perspectives in the room and can do that, you know, helping the, the client recognize, okay, I don't have to uh, continue this behavior. I can, I can see my family as with me in this, in this fight to find my place to fit in and belong versus against me in this fight to fit in and belong. Uh, how about the idea of um, attachment? Oh, I mean, I know we know that there's sexual abuse has strong correlation with later eating disorders, but if you have like an, uh, a, an attachment issue, you know, have you heard this uh, notion of usefulness, usefulness as being like when you have a hole, this emptiness, this l lack or loss of something that should have been, you know, a, a stronger primary attachment that this filling the hole meaning filling your mouth with food to get this feeling of fullness that should come from healthy relationship, but this is like a sad substitute for it. it, it does that, you know, have you heard that theory, that usefulness? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it points to um, each person's unique take on 
what that hole is, right? So if we come back to theory, so the purposefulness of behavior, generally speaking, tends to point to what we feel is missing, right? So we're, it's our striving to try to figure out, you know, how am, how am I going to meet this need? Um, because it's not being met in a way that I think I can just ask for, um, or it's not being met in a, in a way that um, feels good to me. So yeah, if there's, if there's, you know, attachment issues in the family, let's say that, you know, there's a individual who was a foster child, right? And didn't really have a, a secure family unit. So then the eating disorder could serve the purpose of being that one thing that was consistent, mm. you know, that one thing that became, you know, the, the friend, the go-to, um, the thing that always seemed to make me feel better. Right. And so then in some cases, those are those are harder to convince somebody or to help them recognize that there's other ways of doing it because it's been around for so long. You, you know, it's so interesting, too, as just thinking about um, the uh, the fact that when we go to these go to's, when, we, when food is the go to to make us feel good, it's not like alcohol or marijuana or what, because you can't give up food. You can say, I'm going to be sober. You can say, I'm, I'm going to be drug-free, but you can't stop eating. You always have to go to, you, you know what I mean? That's not an yes. option. You have to develop a healthy attitude towards food and you've got to figure out, and this is why I think, again, we see the teens with the brain development and the identity development, but they also have no coping skills. You know, that when we are in a feeling of lack or we're up against a stressor or life is puts a burden on us like COVID and homeschooling or what right? Good God, they're 14 years old. What do they know life experience? What skills do they have? Look, as parents, we're falling apart and we're supposed to have all this great wisdom of the years. Um, can, can, can you speak to, to, you know, how we start to, you know, empower, load the toolbox, deal, help them see this as something that could be skillfully solved rather than because we can't abandon. It's not the answer in this case. Right. So the first, as you were sharing that, the first thing that popped into my head was the empowering nature of a family meeting. And, and it doesn't matter, at least I don't, I don't think it matters. You know, if you still have adult kids living at home, having a family meeting still makes sense. Um, because from an Illyrian standpoint, family meetings are all about each person knowing that they matter, each person knowing that they have an important place in the family and that everybody's going to contribute something to the family. Um, and so obviously if you have, you know, older kids, teens, you know, young adults, whatever living in the house, um, then they're much more capable of handling, you know, bigger kinds of tasks and chores and responsibilities. You know, the younger you go, it's gotta be age appropriate. And there's so many great Adlerian resources out there about, you know, what seven and eight year olds can actually do, which is probably way more than, um, parents like to think that they can handle. So that's the first thing is, is you know, to kind of really look at, for parents to really look at how is the family functioning? Do the children contribute meaningfully in some way, not just because they're born and they breathe? Are they contributing to the family? Because I, I think you can steer, um, you know, some of the some of the learning about coping skills, you know, through learning some of those ways that, some of those life skills, right? So if there's a sense of, I know how to take out the trash or I know how, you know, where all the dishes go, or I know um, how to clean my bathroom. 
um, that's going to build that sense of confidence um, and, and maybe steer them away from that feeling of, I don't matter, I'm not good enough, there's, I'm not smart enough, and, and those kinds of ways of thinking that then can lead to eating disordered behaviors. Um, so I think that, you know, kind of making sure that there's contribution in the home can be a really good way to build coping skills, life skills, those kinds of things. One of the biggest problems um, that we have in, a, in um, westernized society, I would say, is the overdoing for our kids. And so Rudolf Dreikers was so smart um, in saying, don't ever do for a kid what he or she can do for themselves. Um, and so this is where parents really need to take a look and figure out where am I overstepping? Um, and Allison, I remember when I was in Toronto a couple of years ago, you talked about throwing the ball, right? So, so where can you throw the ball to your kid and have them hold it? You know, what, what responsibilities and things can they take on for themselves like laundry like packing their lunch, like cleaning their rooms, um, that, you know, parents these days are just kind of overstepping in those areas. And then the kid feels, you know, they think, well, I'm doing better than my parents did because, you know, my kid doesn't have to worry about anything. Well, that's the problem. Yes, <laughs> that the right. Kid, the kid doesn't learn how to, how to do those things for themselves. And the, the end result is higher anxiety because they go out into the world and they're like, I don't even know how to do my own laundry. Like, how am I, how am I going to live and survive on my own? Um, and and so, also, don't, it also makes the, I think it makes the focus or the, or the implicit message that kids get is my only purpose on this planet is to bring home a report card. That's the only thing that you care about. Everything else is looked after for me, but by God, what, there you go. Now we've got the academic pressure Yes. Um, you know, of the ambitious family with the get the marks and, and either you're getting the marks, but it's coming with anxiety because you're wondering what's going to happen next term because every grade gets harder or you're right. that kid that whatever has some hidden learning disability or it's just not your jam or what, you know, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, you're that B student who's the, the, the disappointment, but all you hear is that's that's your only function in life. Whereas it's like, oh yeah, you do school and you do laundry and you help out and you have an opinion and you plan with us and you there's, you're, you know, you're multifaceted and we love so many aspects of you. Exactly right. So again, I think parents are, are well-intentioned. Um, but, you know, the, if you stop and think about how you want your child to function when they reach 18, right? You don't want them taking a residence in your basement. So are you doing the things now to help them feel confident and capable and like they're, you know, like they matter and they have something important to contribute, you know, or are you, you know, overdoing and overstepping kind of into things that they can handle, which then breeds confidence and breeds that sense of, yes, I can handle life, you know, because again, if, you know, if the opposite of that in terms of eating disorders is life is too overwhelming. So I'm just going to focus on the, the food and the restricting or the binge and the purge or, or whatever it is. We need kids and, and, you know, young adults to recognize, no, I can handle life. How do we then show kids that they can handle life, right? We give them responsibilities and we coach and we encourage and, you know, approach things from a here, let's, you know, let's teach you, let's train you on how to, how to do some of these things because you may not know. And that builds again, that sense of community and that sense of contribution and, and confidence. 
And, and that you, and that part of the training is, is like any other learning model. You learn by making mistakes, right? And, and, and tying that back to the micro skills that come with a family meeting. I mean, I always encourage parents that when you start your next family meeting, you start with old business and how did it go so that you tweak it, right? That it's, it, that it's inherent in the system that you're not going to do something right the first time. It's, it's like, how did that go? Do we need to change it? Do we need to tweak it? Do we need to go back to the drawing board? Like that's, that's how life is. You know, and uh, I think that's just, again, there's so many micro skills, listening, communication, team building that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex thing. Having family meetings is like, everyone will say like, oh, the kids don't like it or it was too much energy. It, yeah, it is. That's why I tell people, I go, Are you, I, did I ever say they're supposed to like them? I mean, my kids, my, guy, my kids, we had family meetings every week, my entire children's childhood and and to your point and even into you know uh, young adulthood because my kids moved back home after they did some of their university for a short term and they said like well we well we never liked them but how would you live without them <laughs> and as soon as they moved out they organized family meetings or you know team meetings for the people that they lived with in in their college houses and things because it's just like how do you expect a group of people to live if you don't have these important conversations right <laughs> exactly right you don't have to like them, but the longer you do them, the, the, you know, and the protective factor with so many benefits, um, you know, to me, it's like giving your kid vitamins. It's like, you know, it, it, it's just, just do them. You don't have to like them. <laughs> just, just get them done. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody wants their, their kid to develop an eating disorder. And so, you know, some of the ways to, to have a better chance of preventing them you know, is, and again, there's, you can start anytime. It's not like, well, shoot, my kid's already 12 and I've missed the boat. No, you can, you can start at any time is, is really kind of honing in on, you know, what are those things that my kid maybe has already taken in about the family? Are those things good? Are those things maybe not so great? Um, you know, or, or can kind of go one way or the other, depending on, you know, how, how life is going. And then it's, okay, well, I know that if we spend time in conversation about more than just school, to your point, about, you know, how is life generally going? You know, what what are the things that you want to learn in this next year, right? What are those things that you really think you, you need to know by the time you reach, you know, end of high school? And then it can become a, a way to, uh, for parents to model things in, in the direction the kid wants to learn. Um, it can be really good interaction and, and family conversation. So the more the more you can continue to engage your kids in conversation, you're going to build a stronger relationship, um, particularly if you take time to use reflective listening versus parent listening. Say, right? so, say, say the difference between those two for those. For yes. listeners. So um, we're really good as human beings to listen to reply versus to listen to understand. And so, you know, when your kid's telling you about something, you're already thinking about the next five questions you're going to ask versus pausing to say, so, you know, uh, you know, Tommy, Letitia, Billy, whomever, you know, this is what I hear you saying. Uh, is that correct? And that's reflective listening. So before you ask the next question or before you offer kind of whatever your response is to, to what you're hearing, it's to give back. So this is what I hear you saying. Is that right? And the, the reason why that's so important is because it shows the other person respect. It shows the other person that, hey, I really want to understand where you're coming from. 
And that's hard sometimes as a parent when we're hearing things, you know, that are not what we want to hear. Um, so, but, but I think the skill of it um, then becomes, okay, my kid now knows that I really want to hear what they have to say. And then from there, maybe they'll be more likely to engage with me when there's a, a, a problem behavior or a struggle that they're facing versus feeling themselves to be a failure and keeping it in. I don't know. Did I address that? Well, yes, enough? no, I think that's, no, <laughs> I, think, I think that's perfect. And, and I think about the fact that when we go to school to train, to be therapists, think of how many hours we get into. Oh, training. I know. And we, and listen, parents listening at home and we get corrected and there's a two-way glass and they, you know, <laughs> and we get called on this stuff because it's not the way we talk. We, we really do have to be trained. Yeah. So we get to kind of put on you and I, luckily get to sort of put on some of our, our, our therapist's hat when we're talking with our kids and hold that non-judgmental space and have that good understanding, reflexive listening. But, but it, we trained at school for that skill. So, so again, it's, it's a big ask of parents, but it's amazing. Even if you just um, not to freak you out and like you're doing it wrong, even just to your point, even just not feeling like you have to reply. Like it, it takes the pressure off. If you say, actually, you don't have to say a thing. Just don't, just listen. There you go. How about that? We, right? <laughs> just zip it. How about that as your first starting block? Just zip. And I found like if I could just listen to my kids and hold the space without all the, you know, paraphrasing and all these other little whatever, but just biting my tongue and holding the space, that was enough without, as I was learning my skills, because they'd eventually come around to, to saying something. And, and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't actually have to do anything there except for like, hold myself back from when I normally jump in. Exactly right. And one yeah. of the, one of the things for parents to know is we are parenting, you know, we, we hope, I think it's, it's every parent's hope that we, that we outdo our, how we were parented, that we do it a little better than how we were parented. And so some of the problem with that is that, if how you were parented you see is so distasteful, then you're more likely to go in a, in a very different direction, which maybe is a good thing, but maybe also is, is a not so great thing. And so when your sense of self and, you know, being that, being the awesome parent gets tied into it, it's going to be harder to not say something because your sense of identity is I have to be the good parent. I have to um, outdo my own parents and so the thought of staying silent or the thought of not offering that advice or not, you know, correcting that behavior is like, why would you, why would you do it that way? Yes. A good mother would step in and get busy with this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, I like that, that analogy of holding space, right? So you invite the conversation to begin. Um, and it may be that your, your kid doesn't talk to you at, more automatically, right? Because if they're so used to you jumping in with, well, here's what I think you should do, or here's how we're going to solve this problem, or here, let me do it for you. Then they're going to be like, what are you doing? You're not, you're not responding to me the way that I'm used to responding. And they're not going to use those words, um, but they're going to be looking at you funny, like, okay, what's, what's this all about? Um, and so you really have to stay the course. You have to, you know, in creating that space, be like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm listening, uh, maybe all that you need to say, uh, and you get to practice that I'm here, I'm here for you. And I'm listening is a great place to start. And then, you know, you kind of build on it from there of when you feel like you can 
offer back. So what I hear you saying, you know, the child that I love, this is what I think you're saying. Am I on the right track? And you invite that feedback from the kid and they're like, well, no, that's not it. So be prepared for that. The, yeah, we, the, don't, the, we don't always get it right. And, and we do need to let them know that they can correct us until we get it right. Because we care enough about them that it's, we're not done talking until I really get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you, you got to be able to hear that. You got to be able to hear that, that you didn't get it right. And, and you may have teenagers who say you didn't get it right just because they want to say it. Um, and you got it exactly right, but they don't want you to know that you got it exactly right. Um, and so you sidestep that power struggle too. <laughs> yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, tell me again, right? So if they, your kid says, no, you messed it up completely, like, okay, let's try again. Tell me again. Um, and then you kind of do your best to say, okay, so uh, this is kind of what I feel, feel like I'm hearing. How is, was that better this time around? And eventually the kid will probably be like, yeah, I can't keep, you know, dragging this out. Yeah. You got it right that time. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and it'll take them, and trust has to build over time as we get better exactly. at that skill, right? Because they're still kind of saying, well, if I share this thought with you, you might criticize it or correct it or want to take over that aspect of my life. And you, there's a trust building part here as also as we're exactly. as we skills. Now, what about those? Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of two more outstanding questions that parents might have. Um, the first being, so what do you do, though, if you actually made a New Year's resolution? Because you do have 40, 50 pounds to lose and, and you want to go on a diet and, and you, you know, you want to do that, but you've got teenagers in your house and now you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, how do I, how do I do that? And, and then the flip side, what if you've got a kid who actually looks like they're going off the, the weight scale or you just see that, because I'm hearing this a lot from parents, like, you know, the juice boxes are piling up in their bedrooms and, you know, they're taking whole sleeves of cookies and bags of chips and they're finding them under their beds and they're just hanging out playing Fortnite and eating junk during COVID. And uh, so how do we make that comment without making it trigger an eating disorder? So those are the two questions. So I think the quote unquote, simple solution would be to um, share that in a family meeting. And, you know, as, as we think about goals, right? So we could have daily goals, we could have weekly goals, monthly goals, family goals, individual goals. So everybody can kind of have their own, their own thing, but that might be the best place to kind of put that out there on the table. So that way, you know, the, the parent who maybe needs to for health reasons, because maybe they're pre-diabetic or, you know, they have heart conditions in the family or whatever, they need to now drop some weight, that that's out there in the open. I definitely think that, you know, kind of in, in normalizing it that way, um, it debunks this idea of this is about appearance or this is about, you know, something else. Um, yeah, saying you have to lose weight because you're, you're, you need to bring down your blood pressure and that every pound of fat takes uh, five miles of blood vessels to innervate it and it's a load on your heart. Those are all health reasons. That's very different than beauty ideals. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, so, so that being kind of the, the place to talk about that. So your second example, um, you know, maybe there needs to be family discussion and, and a, a family boundary setting about where food can be in the house. So that way there's not the hiding of food or hoarding of food, um, you know, in a bedroom or, or, or things like that. So maybe that can be, you know, what, what, you know, prevents some of those things from happening. And then what are the consequences if that gets, you know, if those rules get violated, you know, let's, let's say that, let's go back to that first example. And let's say that 
you know, the, the parent, it's, it's more about appearance than, than health. Right. And that's the goal. Like, well, I just don't like the way I feel in my clothes. I just, you know, I, I, I know that extra weight isn't good for me. I don't necessarily have a health condition that's driving this, um, but I just want to drop weight. Um, then maybe there needs to be the rule about if I'm, if I'm talking about fat talk too much, if I'm, you know, beating up on myself and saying, oh, I look horrible today, then we invite, you know, the family to, to point that out. Like there's a lot of fat talk this week. And again, it puts it out there in the open. And that's, you know, eating disorders exist and, and proliferate in isolation and in secrecy. And so the more light we can throw on it, the more light we can shed on it, I think the better. That's, that's such great advice right there, because I think that to, to your point, we're, there's still the mentality that if I talk about it, I'm breathing energy into it, and then I'm more likely to make it happen. When in fact, it's like, no, <laughs> the, 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 we don't want the pink elephant in the room and having the family with the secrets and the secret agendas. And, you know, so don't, don't fear right. talking about it as maybe having the bad influence at all. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's space for a pediatrician and, and here in the, in the U S I've, I, I have really good pediatricians that I think I've groomed, but there are many pediatricians and doctors that abide by a BMI calculation, a body mass index calculation as the be all and end all of health. Let me debunk that too. That should not be the only factor that a doctor is determining um, health by. So, um, but having a, a pediatrician that is going to explain you're still in a major period of growth. You can't be restricting your food um, in, in this direction um, because your brain is still growing. Your body and your muscles are still growing. You know, the, the, the biological indicator for girls in particular is, you know, are they able to maintain a period? So if you've got, that's another factor to watch for. If you've got a, a female and she's unable to maintain a period, then she is not optimally feeding herself. Uh, there's something off there. So certainly having good relationships with the medical professionals who are seeing your kids um, is, is going to be another, another really important factor too. Yeah. Any other debunking stuff that you go like, oh, that drives me crazy when I hear that or see that, or <laughs> if people only knew better or. Yes. One of my favorites. Um, and when people stop and actually think about it, they're like, oh yeah, that's really stupid. Um, is the, uh, you know, a pound of fat weighs a, more than a pound of muscle. It's like, no. A pound is a pound is a pound is a pound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so what happens is, you know, when you build muscle, it gets leaner, right? So the scale might go up as you exercise because you're building muscle mass first, but then really kind of the sign of health is the, the loss of inches. And so a lot of people, again, kind of put so much emphasis on what the scale says. Again, BMI calculation, right? It's just your height and your weight, it doesn't take into consideration, you know, bone structure. It doesn't take into consideration, you know, genetic factors or, or things like that. It's just a very crude calculation, you know, for, for parents who have kids who are on the, the overweight side, you know, again, I would employ the, um, the skills of a nutritionist, you know, to help kind of come up with a realistic calorie, you know, daily calorie intake. Um, that's still going to give their brain all the nutrients it needs, um, but that will eventually kind of take them back down to perhaps a healthier weight range. So, so those are just some of the other things that um, come to mind when 
I hear parents I've, I've ask. Also, I've also heard the advice, keep the weight the same for, te- we're talking about young adolescents. Again, this is where we start the beginning of seeing these things. The goal, the goal is never to lose weight, but to, to maintain your weight and then, gr- and then grow, you know? So if you're, you know, if you're 12, keep your 12 weight, your weight at age 12. And by the time you're 14, you're probably in the right proportion again. Um, not supervised again, as you said, from uh, somebody who's yeah. in that, in that industry that knows that stuff, but. Yeah. And a lot of parents don't realize that, you know, your kid gets, you know, you may notice your kid getting chubbier and then a lot of parents, particularly because of all the emphasis on, on body shape and appearance and thinness and so on, get all bent out of shape. And it's like, no, your kid has to gain weight before they grow taller. And so if your kid's a little chubbier, pay attention, but it's not something that I would get hypervigilant about because they may be about to hit a growth spurt. And so, you know, again, it's, I could always tell when my kids were about to hit a growth spurt because their cheeks got a little, a little fuller and their wrists um, seemed to seem to be really thick. And then lo and behold, you look at them again the week later and it's like, oh my gosh, you've gotten taller and that goes away. Um, so it's something else to remember too, is that There's your kids- body have, wisdom. Yeah, exactly right. Can I ask you one more question before sure. we wrap up here, if you have time? Um, as you were talking, I was thinking that uh, we hadn't really covered off anything in terms of cultural variance. Is there anything that we need to be sensitive about uh, different minority groups and how this impacts them or how we address this? Um, sadly, there seems to be no ethnic group that um, when introduced to westernized ideals of beauty uh, escapes this issue. Ugh. Yeah. So um, it used to be that particularly for um, people of African descent, so African-Americans, as we say here in the U.S., or people who are black, they used to have some protective, cultural protective factors that, you know, having a a larger butt or having, you know, kind of a, a heavier overall body shape and size was seen as more attractive than in a, you know, Caucasian white, you know, kind of a culture. That I think has shifted. I don't, I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, you know, there's, there's always interesting studies about, you know, when, when more remote cultures get exposed to, again, kind of westernized ideals. So think about TV, movies, um, you know, advertisements, those kinds of things. You see the body dissatisfaction increase first. And then from there, it's okay, well, how do we, how do we deal with body dissatisfaction? Well, we mess with our food. And so then it, it kind of follows suit. So yeah, I, I mean, at, th- at this point, there may still be some, some cultures where having a, a slightly larger than average body size is acceptable. But in my experience and the research I've read, it's, it can affect pretty much any culture that values this westernized ideal. Yeah. So we've got to protect them from our toxic, poor valued, misguided way of doing yeah. Right, we're we, yeah. we're we're really um, this is this is the plight of having a competitive, individualistic, uh, consumer marketing, beauty-driven, ambition-driven culture, and we're we're living in it. So we got to we got to rail against it. Not and it starts with each family, and hopefully we can, you know, make some controls on what advertisers are allowed to say, what, you know, if we could rein that in a little better, I think there's intervention that can happen probably at every level in that chain to make us all healthier. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that that brought to mind just as another statistic people might find interesting. So the, the beauty and diet industry, and I think it increases if we roll the quote unquote health industry into it, but 
just if we stick with beauty and diet industry, uh, cosmetic industry, it's a like 40 to $50 billion industry in the US. So if we roll health and wellness into that too, to me, I, I, I think that's, you know, you're looking at at least an 80 to $100 billion industry. So that's a lot of money going in those directions. And so, you know, again, like the, the best we can do is to really check ourselves and figure out, okay, what messages are we taking in? What am I potentially passing on to my kid? And, you know, how do, how do I kind of with my own little microcosm affect some change there? That's one of the things that, um, that always kind of comes into my head and blows my mind. Yeah. Well, and we know marketing works or else we wouldn't do it. So <laughs> we can, we at least can combat it by being aware and, uh, and sharing all this information, which is why I love this podcast. And I'm so grateful for your time and having this discussion. I know there's a lot of parents that are going to be super happy that they tuned in. And I um, am thankful also that you sent me some interesting links to online resources. And I will also post those in the show notes. If parents want to get credible sources of information, there's lots of information on the internet. Doesn't mean it's all good. So these are, um, have come from uh, Susan herself. So they are vetted and uh, good resources for parents. So thank you for sharing those. And thank you for your time. I certainly appreciate the, uh, the, the invite and we'll gladly come back again. If parents, you know, have any questions, you know, Allison, I don't know how you do it, but feel free to funnel things to me. If, um, if it's something that I can then send to you back and you can post on your website. Wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Until the next time. time. Take care. Thanks. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.